Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, what is it in your life that just instantly takes you home? Maybe it's a smell, a meal, maybe it's a movie. A home is the place that you feel known, that you are at ease, that you can let down your guard. And research has increasingly shown that humans are much more integrated into their physical surroundings than often our modern digital virtual world would suggest. Dr. Frank McAndrew writes, our physical surroundings play such an important role in creating a sense of meaning and organization in our lives. It is not surprising that our sense of the place that we live is closely tied to our sense of who we are. Now, think of the life script of the modern, upwardly mobile American. Move to the city, keep applying for the next job, take the next one no matter where it's located. Settling down is often seen as a capitulation, a negotiation that has to come with life. And now listen, I am not saying all this to to condemn or criticize, merely as an observation of the way that our world works. I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with this mentality, but I do want to point out that it is a privileged perspective that is afforded to the relatively few in our world and often sells a story that promises much more than it can deliver on. Mark Sayers writing on this sense of modern malaise around the transience and mobility of our world writes, the contemporary self does not even have to literally be on the move to be on the road. Being on the road is primarily a state of mind, one that constantly is dissatisfied, looking for the next best thing, living in incompleteness, always engaged in a quest for a sense of significance. Mark Sayers writes this about our culture, this sense of dissatisfaction that bleeds into every part of our lives and then, you know, eventually works itself out in distraction and a constant yearning for more. Now, I want to look at another life script. Think about the refugee. Think about the South Sudanese encamped in the Bidi uh, Bidi settlement in Uganda, forced to leave their home because of violence and strife, trying to find some sense of stability and order in chaos, a place with meaningful work and enough to eat for a family, and most of all, that eternal and, and common human longing for welcome, You belong here, from the powerful to the powerless. The longing for home is a part of the human condition and has has defined some of the greatest stories that we tell in our culture and has defined some of the most painful things that we see in our world. We all, every one of us, long for a warm meal, a place to put our feet up, a place to feel safe and known, a people a people to come around us and say, you are valued for who you are. The novelist Ariel Dorfman says of our modern world, we live in the age of the refugee, the age of exile. So the question as we begin this morning, where is home for you? Now, for me, home is a complex subject. 
I have moved over 20 times in my life and, and I know the feeling well of being the new kid in school. The anthropologist Michael Jackson, yes, Michael Jackson, drawing on the work of Hannah Arendt, describes a visiting imagination that exists in the world without feeling fully at home in it. Mako Fujimura, the artist and thinker and writer, highlights the work of the border stalkers from Beowulf, those who live on the edge of the community but never fully integrate into their life. Justo Gonzalez describes the mestizo experience and existence of St. Augustine, Roman and African, and never fully at home in either world. All of these, and many stories that I have read throughout my life, have, have helped put a name to what I have often felt, a sense of distance, of not always really belonging. And to top it all off, I'm a four on the Enneagram, so the image of looking through a, a window at a party where everybody's dancing and having fun, but you can't quite join in, resonates quite well with me. But through all of these experiences, the awareness that often slowly and painfully trickles in as life progresses, through prayer and honesty about the limitations of my own life and through counseling, I've begun to see that this longing for home is one of those sovereign themes in my life, one of those angles of the story that God has, has situated me in so that I can see what He is doing in the world in this respect. You know, we all have a perspective to offer that is so valuable. And for me, this is one of the angles that I, I find throughout my life that I have seen more clearly because of my experiences. Now, through all of this sense of dislocation and disorientation, people have formed the boundaries of home for me. I'm eternally grateful to Courtney, to our children, to my parents and brother, to my in-laws, to our church community and friends and my extended family, who through all of this have, have been the shape of home for me. In the absence of a consistent place or setting, people in my life have always filled the gaps of security and familiarity, framing home for me in a way that I, I think has helped me to grasp the story of Jesus and the often home and not yet at home sense that we are invited into as we are pilgrims in this world. So I say all this to say that this is a deeply personal subject for me. And I hope that somehow the story of my own life and the vantage point that that has built up over time will be in some way illuminating for you today. But more than that, I hope that this Jesus story illuminates your truest desires and shows you how His way, His truth, and His life offers satisfaction to those desires that are beyond what we would ever ask or imagine. If you feel untethered in the world, like you don't know who you are, like you don't belong, that you don't know your story, or that you have veered so far off track at some point in the past that you could never find your way again, if you feel this ache in your bones with the turning of the nightly news cycle, that this world is absurd and everything is not as it should be, if you miss people that are gone far too soon and too tragically, if you feel alone without friend or family, or if you're just trying to find something big enough to live for, then I, I pray that this time that we are going to share opening the scriptures meets you today in a profound and unique way. Now, within the confines of John's gospel, 
John 21 can seem a little confusing, and that's the passage that we're going to land in today. In John 20, the risen Jesus appears to the disciples and commissions them as his emissaries in the world. But John 21 describes the disciples seemingly ignorant of the events of John 20. Now, it's hard to believe that given the events of John 20, they would have gone back to fishing in normal life so quickly after seeing Jesus risen from the dead. But for the purposes of John's gospel, I think it is prudent to separate these two chapters chronologically. John is not concerned with this building on a sequence of events. As far as the story is concerned, these two chapters are unaware of the other. But as far as John's themes are concerned, the themes that he wishes to highlight throughout this very tightly woven work that is John's gospel, there is a deep continuity here. So for our purposes today, we will assume that the disciples who are fishing have no prior knowledge of the risen Jesus. In John 21, the world is bathed in a post-resurrection light. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, has now risen from the dead. He has conquered death, but everyone doesn't quite know it yet. Now it's here that we pick up the story, and this allows the story, which is often so important when we read the Bible, to unfold on its own terms. Look in John 21, starting in verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. This chapter begins in a deep and heavy disappointment. We have all had experiences with what Peter is feeling here. You could take it from a very small scale. That feeling of returning from a vacation or a rich time away, just from the the normal and the mundane realities, back to reality. So when you move from vacation mode to, oh wow, we have to start this thing all over again, and Monday comes, and the realities of work and school and bills and schedules greet you right away, the smaller scale, to the much larger and realer scale of loss, loss of a beloved friend, loss of a loved one, Peter and his companions here, as we find them in John 21, exist in this space. After three years of following Jesus, of spending just about every waking moment with him, now they are alone. The purpose that he had held out for them to be fishers of people now all seems like a cruel lie. The ridicule they experience from their community for following a failed Messiah who was humiliated and exposed as a fraud on the cross and the pain. Oh, the pain of the loss. Jesus was not just a rabbi, not just a teacher. He was a friend unlike any companion they had ever known. They had thought he was the one. And sadly, as they face the reality in John 21, it seems that all of that is over. And what's worse for Peter, the last words that he had spoken to Jesus had been a lie. He had been adamant to Jesus that he would never deny him, that he would never leave his side. But Jesus had known better. As if he saw something in Peter that Peter wanted to suppress or ignore, 
Jesus had warned him that he would not be faithful to his word, but Peter was determined never to leave Jesus. When the soldiers had approached Jesus in the garden to arrest him, Peter was ready to demonstrate his undying loyalty. He drew his sword and sliced off one of their ears. It was time, time for the revolution, time for the fight. First these soldiers and then the puppet leaders in Jerusalem and then the Romans. All of it was going to happen in Peter's mind's eye. He was following the Messiah, the conquering king who would lead the chosen people of God to victory. But as Peter sliced off the ear of the soldier in the garden, Jesus didn't draw to arms. Rather, he turned and he rebuked Peter and he told him, this is not the way. And what was even more surprising, Jesus did not extend his hands in combat, but rather touched the man's ear and the man's ear was made whole instantly. The unspeakable power that Jesus held that Peter thought would be the way that they would conquer all the enemies of the people of God was used not to conquer his enemies, but to heal his enemies. And as Jesus was taken away, hauled off like a petty criminal, Peter, so disoriented and confused, forgot Forgot his resolve, forgot his vow that he would never leave Jesus. And as he followed closely at a distance, somebody asked him, Hey, you're one of his disciples, right? Peter adamantly denied that he knew Jesus. And he did this not just once, but three times. And as Peter looks out over the water on this faithful morning in John 21, he is in every way a spiritual refugee. And I think that this liminal space... This, this time where the story unfolds in Peter's life defines our own distance from home and the way that we often try to negotiate this space so poignantly and so well. Now today I want to look at some ways that Peter embodies our own modern, modern spiritual refugee status. Peter here is in exile. He has no country, no story that he has confined himself within. This Albert Camus describes this space. In a universe suddenly divested of illusions and light, man feels like an alien, a stranger. His exile is without remedy since he is deprived of the memory of a lost home or the hope of a promised land. Peter as he stares out on the water on this Sunday morning, is trying to negotiate with his exile. And we often do this. We try to take exile and make our home there. And the, I want to look at just a couple of ways that Peter tries to do this, because I think, again, it mirrors the ways that we often do this, try to make plant our homes and build our foundations in exile so well. So the first way that Peter tries to negotiate with his, his exile being removed from the story of Jesus and seeing that story broken down before his eyes is distraction. Peter says to his friends, I'm going fishing. Now this is such a revealing statement from Peter. When he first met Jesus in Luke 5, Jesus had convinced Peter after a long night of toiling away fishing and catching nothing to give it one more go. And to this day, Peter still couldn't tell you why he said yes to this man who clearly knew nothing about fishing. But with all his skepticism, Peter just did what the man asked. As he, This rabbi who had been teaching on the beach turned to him and said, Hey, let's go put out the nets for another catch. And Peter looked at him like, Well, we caught nothing all night, but okay, here we go. And they caught 
what seemed like every fish in the sea with one cast of the net. Jesus had told him from that day on, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. But for the time being, Peter is caught in a place where that calling given to him by Jesus seems impossible. So, he has gone back to the life that he knows. Now, we've talked throughout this series about what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, or the, uh, the terminology we've used, the closed universe, and how this is the default operating system of our world. In a closed universe, newness is not possible. Nothing can break through from the outside, from, from outside the mechanisms of this world, so you have to negotiate with reality. And in the modern West, we have perfected negotiating with exile through distraction. Whether it be large-scale narratives, like what did the president say today, or what does the Supreme Court ruling have to mean for us in our lives, to the small-scale things, things like our Facebook and Instagram feeds, our world is built upon whipping our attention into a frenzy and turning every which way. And we've said it so many times throughout the early life of our church, but it says a lot more that the most, most profitable companies in the tech industry are all after one single golden goose, your attention. And this quest to capture our attention doesn't just waste time, it creates in us a false, idolatrous picture of what home should look like. We focus on the surface. Our house should look Instagram-friendly, straight out of kinfolk or bloosh. That's a good reference for those of you who catch it. Or our passport should be littered with stamps from our latest adventures. That's kind of tough right now though, right? Distraction is not just a diversion from the real. It destroys our sense of what home could be and should be. It robs us of hope, which is our inheritance in Jesus, and fixes our eyes not on the throne where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, but on the small things of this world. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, says it this way in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Everything that confronts us is vanity. Since the same fate comes to all, to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to those who sacrifice and those who do not sacrifice, go then, eat your bread with enjoyment, drink your wine with a merry heart. This is Kohelet's conclusion, that it's all meaningless, that nothing is worthy of our attention. And Camus, in praise of Sisyphus, the Greek tragic figure consigned to, to forever push a rock up a hill that as soon as he almost reaches the top, tumbles back to the bottom, and then he has to start over again, says it this way, there's no home, there's no arrival, rejoice. James K. Smith, in comment, commenting on our modern malaise and penchant for instant gratification and satisfaction, says of the modern world, the condition is exile, and happiness is embracing it. Distraction leaves us without hope, because we're so focused on the immediate, the small things that we can some way manipulate and control, but the way of home is a way of surprise, a deeper hope that, as we will see, beckons us to see through our distractions and our sense that we are not at home, what Heidegger called the uncanny. Peter turns to distraction turns to what he knows, turns to what he can control. And Jesus, as we will see, will break through that distraction, will introduce newness into the closed system.
The first way that Peter negotiates with his exile, that he tries to embrace his new life, is simply through returning to the life that he knows. Now, the second way that Peter negotiates with his exile, self-determination. Peter, in his exilic state now, takes it upon himself to provide for his own life. Without Jesus, he now has to be captain of his own fate. He has to forge a life for himself. When we refuse to accept our refugee status, we refuse to see that our lives are always dependent upon God's loving and careful provision. In a closed universe, there can be no hope of a benevolent God who clothes the flowers of the field with splendor or feeds the birds of the air in spite of their lack of toil. No, in a closed universe, it's all up to us. And that weight, that weight of anxiety, of needing to, to show up and produce and provide can be crushing. I think about one of the defining features of home in my own life thinking about the way my parents loved and cared for me when I was younger. And I think about this, the sense of provision. I've always had a baseline level of security because of the way my parents showed up and took care of me. And now listen, I know I'm describing a reality that many of you did not experience in your younger days, but I, I do not say this to remind you yet again of what is lost, but to point out that that experience for my life and the longing for it gives us a glimpse of what home should look like. Home is the place where everything does not depend on us. The place of the easy yoke and the featherweight burden. Peter had experienced this in his own life. We already talked about the first day that he had ever met Jesus and the overwhelming catch of fish. In John chapter 6, Jesus fed thousands upon thousands with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And following that scene, many were so disappointed with Jesus because it, it turned out that he was not going to be the king that they wanted him to be, the king that they thought he should be. And many turned and walked away from Jesus. And Jesus turned to Peter in that moment. He said, are you leaving too? And Peter said, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But now Peter has gone to another place, back to the familiar. The words of life that were spoken over him and, and to him have been replaced with a resolute self-determination. We embrace and negotiate with exile when we rely upon our own strength. We associate home with rest to put our feet up, not because God is cruel and holds out these longings over us as some sort of cosmic game of hide and seek. No, rather they are signposts pointing us to what life in the kingdom of God with Jesus as our king actually looks like. James K. A. Smith again says it this way, maybe our craving for rest, refuge, arrival, home is a hunger that can't be edited. If there's a map inscribed in the human heart that shows where home is, the fact that we haven't arrived doesn't make it a fiction. It might just mean there's a way that we haven't yet tried. Peter is trying the way of self-determination, but Jesus will break through that. And again, we'll see his miraculous provision, his miraculous way of showing up and saying, you are home, I've got you, you don't need to worry about this. So Peter has tried to negotiate with his current state of exile through distraction and through self-determination. And now we'll look at the last way that Peter tries to negotiate with his exilic state. The last way that Peter tries to so somehow wrest control and wrap his arms around the situation is through disappointment. 
But this disappointment is not simply the disappointment that he feels with God. We've already talked a little bit about that, how Peter's whole world has come crashing down and watching Jesus be crucified. No, this disappointment is rather the deep-seated disappointment that he feels with himself. How could he, Peter wonders, have turned his back on Jesus so quickly? What's worse, Jesus had given him every warning. How could he have fallen asleep in the moments before Jesus was arrested? In Peter's mind, in this moment in the story, he would never again be able to look Jesus in the eye and ask for his forgiveness, would never be able to apologize. Grace is a foreign concept to the closed universe because grace, by definition, is a breaking in of the very heart of God, a flowing and a pouring out of the mercy and beauty of God. Grace deconstructs and breaks down the closed system, crashing through its walls. But for Peter, this is simply an impossibility. And friends, I wonder how many of us have put a lid on the universe. We've closed down our lives, not because of some wider cultural story, but if we're honest, if we, if we were given truth here, we would say that we just feel that we have deeply disappointed God, that God is deeply displeased with us. But friends, I, I hope you'll see today the biblical story, especially as it describes exile, is not describing exile as God turning his face from us, turning his back on us. No, the biblical story describes a God who never leaves us, never forsakes us, never gives up on us. No, rather, exile is when we turn our faces from his face, when we try to hide ourselves and our disappointments in fig leaves of shame and despair. But God still comes to us. He still meets us in that place. And I pray that if there's something, a voice that's just kind of saying to you, that's you, you've disappointed God, that there is a story and a voice that is much louder and much gentler saying to you, there's a home for you still. There's a home for you still in my love. Friends, we've seen this morning how Peter has tried to negotiate with his exile through distraction, through self-determination, through disappointment. And I want to look at the rest of the story here. The turning point to see how Jesus breaks down these, these habits or these uh, strategies of, of negotiation and breaks through them and provides a new future. Look at the rest of the story beginning in John 21 verse 4. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach But the disciples did not know yet that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they did it. They cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. The risen Jesus appears to them, echoing the scene in Luke 5, the first time Jesus had ever encountered Peter. Jesus provides abundance by his very word yet again. And again, this time, Peter puts down his nets to go and be with Jesus. The image of Peter putting on clothes and running to Jesus is an echo of of the Adam and Eve story, trying to clothe themselves with figs and leaves. But here we already see a remarkable shift in this paradigm taking place. Instead of hiding naked and afraid like Adam and Eve, Peter puts on clothes to run to Jesus. 
Peter knows that this next conversation might be painful for him, but the resurrection of Jesus makes healing and life possible where death had seemed to have closed that door forever. When they had gone ashore, verse 9, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. And friends, I, I think this is one of the most beautiful scenes in all of the Bible. The risen Jesus meeting the disciples on a beach, cooking a breakfast for them, fresh caught fish, smoking over a charcoal fire, just saying, come, there's no need for self-determination here. I've provided the fish. I've started the fire. There's no need for self-reliance. Come and put your feet up. Come, let's, let's laugh at what has unfolded here. The only other time that the word for charcoal is used in John's gospel is the time where Peter denied Jesus around a fire. And for Peter, you know how those, those, our senses have memories. And so Peter, as he approaches the fire, the smell from the wood burning, the feel of the warmth on his skin, all of this would trigger memories for Peter of that moment. And there's such a picture of care, a picture of rest and hospitality here. Jesus has set the table for his friends. He has handled every detail. This is home. This is the place where God meets us and dines with us and is present with us, where he is providing for us. This is like a beautiful picture of a Thanksgiving holiday where everybody and everything is at peace. The invitation to dine with Jesus is the Savior saying to every one of us, Welcome home. You have nothing here to prove, just be. It's an invitation to dwell in the cosmic shalom of God. In verse 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think he was talking about the fish here, but it's unclear. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Jesus now asked Peter the question three times, Do you love me? Now remember, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Jesus is showing Peter at every single turn that he is at home in his love, that he doesn't need to fear disappointment or rejection. And each time Peter answers the question, Jesus renews the call, the purposes on Peter's life. Not only is Peter to be a fisher of people seeking them out, he's supposed to be a shepherd, a tender of one who cares for them. Jesus in this interaction uh, with Peter removes all of Peter's attempts to negotiate and stay at home in his exile. He comes to him, the prodigal God, running to those who are lost. This is home, Jesus says to Peter, where Jesus has our attention. We trust him for the food and the purpose that we crave, and his mercy overshadows even our deepest disappointments. And the story finishes... Verse 18, very truly I tell you, 
when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you will grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would die to glorify God. And after this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Now these verses don't sound much like home. Taken where you don't want to go, death. But notice, the last instruction, follow me. Friends, this is the heart of the matter. Ecclesia, this is who we are called to be. A people at home in the love of Jesus. Your longest longing for home. Your longest longing to be known, to put your feet up, to have breakfast, for all of your shame and disappointments to be undone, for our self-reliance to be unnecessary, find its home in Jesus. And even in heartache, even in suffering, as we follow Jesus in his love, we have an unshakable home because home is where Jesus is. We have blessing, purpose, provision, presence, because Jesus is near. His invitation to follow him is our invitation to home. And I want to encourage you, if you feel as if you've been living in exile, as you've been living distracted and self-reliant or disappointed, disappointed in God, disappointed in yourself, you've been living with shame, I want you to see that the arms of the Father as He runs down the road to you are open wide. He's running to embrace you. You can jump into the water and come to Him and see that He has set the table for you. Your longing for home, Ecclesia, is the truest thing about you. And Jesus, through his blood, his body, his cross, and his resurrection, has rolled out the welcome mat for every single person. James K. Smith writes beautifully, and I pray you'll forgive the longer quote, but I just think it is so stirring and so stunning. In painting this picture of home, he writes, We are not just pilgrims on a sacred march to a religious site. We are migrants, strangers, resident aliens, en route to a homeland we've never been to. God is the country we are looking for, the place where true consolation of our migration is found. Running fast won't help us get there. Crumpling into the middle of the road and giving up doesn't really solve anything either. And telling yourself the road is life over and over again starts to ring as a hollow consolation. You can't get there from here. But what if someone came to get you? You can't get to that last thing, but what if it came to you? And what if the thing turned out to be a someone? And what if that someone not only knows where the end of the road is, but promises to accompany you the rest of the way, to never leave you or forsake you until you arrive? This is the God who runs down the road to meet the prodigals. Grace isn't high-speed transport all the way to the end, but the gift of His presence the rest of the way. And it is the remarkable promise of His Son who meets us in this distance. My Father's house has many rooms. There is room for you in the Father's house. His home is your end. He is with you every step of the way there. That is beautiful. God is the country we're looking for. You're home now, and you have a home that awaits. There is room for you. He is with you. He loves you. 
Make your home in his love. Come and have breakfast. Grace and peace to you, friends. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.